Welcome to Worker Movement, a podcast dedicated to the working class, a podcast dedicated to raising class consciousness. This podcast is for you, for us, for the worker. On June 25th, 2021, at about 2.55 p.m. local time, Judge Peter Cahill announced a prison sentence for Derek Chauvin. I'm not going to attempt to be profound or clever because it's not the appropriate time. I'm not basing my sentence also on public opinion. I'm not basing it on any attempt to send any messages. A trial court judge, the job of a trial court judge is to apply the law to specific facts and to deal with individual cases. And so, Mr. Chauvin, as to count one, based on the verdict of the jury, finding you guilty of unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony under Minnesota Statute 609.19 Subdivision 2, Paren 1, it is the judgment of the court that you now stand convicted of that offense. Pursuant to Minnesota Statute uh, Section 60904, counts two and three will remain unadjudicated as they are lesser offenses of count one. As sentence for count one, the court commits you to the custody of the Commissioner of Corrections for a period of 270 months. That's 270. That is a 10-year addition to the presumptive sentence of 150 months. This is based on your uh, abuse of a position of trust and authority and also the particular cruelty shown to George Floyd. You are granted credit for 199 days already served. Pay the mandatory surcharge of $78 to be paid from prison wages. You're prohibited from possessing firearms, ammunition, or explosives for the remainder of your life. Provide a DNA sample as required by law. Register as a predatory offender as required by law. And then you will receive a copy of the order and also the attached memorandum explaining the court's analysis. Anything further from the state? If this needs to be said, we just ask that it be executed forthwith. Tenant is remanded to the custody of the sheriff to be transported uh, back to the DOC or whichever custody is currently holding him. Anything for the defense? There we are. All right. Thank you. We are adjourned. There's quite a bit of information to digest, and some of it is a little vague with statute citations. We'll start with the way sentencing works in Minnesota. The most severe conviction, stemming from a single crime or act or incident, becomes the basis for the sentence. In Chauvin's case, he was convicted of three charges, second-degree manslaughter, third-degree murder, and second-degree unintentional murder, which carries the harshest penalty. Chauvin will not be sentenced for the two lesser crimes. He will serve his term of 270 months, which is 22 and a half years, by the way, based on the single sentence. The sentences don't add, they are served concurrently. Secondly, Judge Cahill discusses the presumptive sentence. The presumptive sentence is derived from a guideline table, which is the album art for this episode, that defines a suggested range. In Chauvin's case, his criminal history score is a zero, the lowest score, because he has no prior history of crime. This aligns to a guideline sentence of 128 to 180 months, where 150 months is the center of that range. 150 months is the presumptive sentence. Chauvin's sentence is an upward departure of the presumptive sentence by 10 years. This can occur because the judge can use their discretion when aggravating factors are present. The state prosecution asked for aggravating factors to be considered, and on May 12th, Judge Cahill determined 
that four aggravating factors were present. During the sentencing, he calls out cruelty and position of authority specifically, but he also ruled that the crime was committed in the presence of a group and children were present. Judge Cahill made this aggravating factor determination because Chauvin waived his right to have the jury decide. In Judge Cahill's closing remarks, they were relatively brief, but he did cite a memorandum containing his rationale in a 22 or 26 page document, depending on how you count pages. Before discussing the order, what are some factors that may weigh on the determination of the sentence that perhaps weren't grounded or based on legal theory or precedent or constructs? So if you're the judge and you're looking at this from a, how do you preserve the justice system? How do you establish justice? What are some considerations that you would take into account? We have to start with understanding that the judge's role in this is not to actually have justice. The judge's role in this is to maintain status quo within the policing, give out a, a sentence that will placate, again, we'll keep using that term, the masses, make the left, the Antifa super soldiers, the BLM terrorists, all the people that the right hate, you know, make them not burn down the city again. If the judge gives the minimum, I don't think that's enough for the city to heal. At the same time, not make it so bad that it's going to make an appeal super easy for Chauvin. Based on Judge Cahill's memo, he didn't consider any of these political concepts overtly. The memo outlines why the two aggravating factors he stated were substantial enough to warrant an upward departure and why the other two aggravating factors were not. The presence of children was mitigated because they weren't the subject of harm, there was no evidence of trauma, and they were voluntarily present. The group of three offenders aggravating factor was effectively set aside because of a wording nuance over person and offender that the court was largely just disinterested in resolving, giving the presence of the other two aggravating factors. That seems to be the case for the children being present as well. He cited some other examples of other convictions that had children present, and they were much more egregious than bystanders that were physically unharmed. The memo goes on to state that Determining the appropriate length of any felony sentence is not a mathematical calculation, but then provides statistics and tables to establish that the average sentence of similar nature is 278.2 months. Judge Cahill's reasoning attempts to frame the sentence as presidentially consistent, which is in effect a political decision to fall squarely within the range of public opinion. If he goes too low, the city burns, as you said, and if he goes too high, the bootlickers get angry. The bootlicker contingency that you have supports cops no matter what, but the cops themselves are not supporting Chauvin. It's politically untenable at this point to support Chauvin. Yeah. Part of the calculus might have been to just throw Chauvin to the wolves and try and do like a clean break and say he's not one of us. And that's exactly what the police force did, right? He's not one of us. And it's, I think, exactly what Cahill did, too. He was the deputy attorney general of Hennepin County, which is where this case is being tried, while Amy Klobuchar was the lead attorney general or district attorney or whatever the phrase is in Minnesota. Cahill had to go high basically to send a warning shot that you're not going to be able to get away with this type of policing, even though I'm not sure what that is because it was just basically pure violence. I mean, it's okay to execute people and shoot them in the back, but it's not okay to murder somebody with a knee on their back because you're being recorded for nine minutes. Yeah, don't get caught, I think, is the message. Right. If, if you don't have a witness, you can't get caught. That's why that sentence is so high is to basically warn police that the next time, don't get caught. Because there was a lot of resources expended by capital on this whole trial. 
and nobody wants to repeat that again. A lot. I mean, the city lost a ton of money. Um, news cycles were basically just all Chauvin trial. I mean, that's wasting advertiser money. It's not going to be good for the political hopes and dreams of the people in Minneapolis. They're all just neoliberal ghouls. But you really can't say, well, well, what did you do? Oh, well, I was on the city council or I was the mayor when the whole fucking city burned down because the cops fucking killed somebody. Yeah, that doesn't bode well for one's resume for the future. And we'll get back to the city of Minneapolis being an absolute corrupt shithole. But there's a couple other updates uh, surrounding the Chauvin trial that we want to cover that have happened in the last weeks and months since our last Chauvin trial episode. The trial for the other three officers involved in George Floyd's murder was originally scheduled for the fall of 2021. But Judge Peter Cahill, who's also presiding over their trial, moved that trial into March of 2022 citing two factors. The first is that he just wanted to create some space in the media sphere around their trial and the results of the Chauvin trial so as to not bias the potential jury pool. The second is that the Department of Justice charged all four officers with civil rights violations. And the thinking is that the civil rights violations filed federally are more severe than the state's charges, so he wants to allow the federal charges to progress first. The key piece to the federal charges is that the Department of Justice has established they can charge cops who fucking murder people. But why are these the only four cops charged in all of the United States? That's a good question. And I actually don't know why cops have never been charged, except that the Department of Justice is a law enforcement agency whose job it is is to ruin people's lives at the federal level. So they spend all their time arresting poor people, and they don't have a history of arresting, you know, cops. I don't know why they don't use a civil rights charge against, like, every cop, because they literally violate civil rights every single day. Only the most abusive or the most atrocious crimes the federal government steps in for. And there's a history of this, right? The history of violence is that the federal government sits around and waits for the, the masses to get upset, and they come in and squash it. So why would the Department of Justice waste time charging Chauvin at this point, when you could spend resources charging any of the other cops that have killed people? You go after the one guy who's already been convicted in his state and sentenced to 22 and a half years. I, I'm going to say this probably to save face. I mean, because the Department of Justice is this organization that has no real value to anybody in any place in the United States as a worker because I actually don't know anybody that they try for any real crimes and I say that quite literally I don't know what they do like when FBI arrests like a drug dealer or someone who does kidnapping that's a federal crime or bank robbery on a federal crime do they charge them through the Department of Justice is that is that who charges federal crimes yes ish the Department of Justice is basically the umbrella group that's responsible for prosecuting federal crimes and defending or prosecuting civil cases where the U.S. is party. For the most part, they just preserve the government's ability to commit state violence. So, prime example is that the Department of Justice announced they are suing the state of Georgia for voting right restrictions that were recently passed. While at the same time, the officer that killed Rayshard Brooks at a Wendy's is awaiting trial for felony murder, was just reinstated as a police officer. So these federal departments have a bunch of power to do stuff, but they don't. Because like I don't know what the Federal Election Committee does because they haven't investigated anybody's election fraud. Anybody. Not Trump, not Biden, not Obama, not Hillary Clinton, not Bill Clinton, not anybody. Not Bush. 
So the Department of Justice decided they were going to charge these four officers basically for political motivations to establish that they care deeply about justice. And optics is probably the reason why they did it. It's not complicated, and we'll see what happens with these charges. Another issue from the trial that still hasn't been resolved is whether third-degree murder will actually apply to Derek Chauvin. There is an ongoing appeal to the Minnesota Supreme Court as to whether third-degree murder applies to an act done against a single individual. The intent of third-degree murder, based on Minnesota statute, is that it applies to an aggregation or a group of people. So if you fire a gun into a crowd, you're guilty of third-degree murder. If you're drunk driving and you kill somebody, you're guilty of third-degree murder because you're doing harm to a collective. But Derek Chauvin was doing harm to a single individual. I think there's a pretty strong likelihood that third-degree murder does not apply in Derek Chauvin's case because it was done against a single individual. So let's presume that third-degree murder doesn't apply in Derek Chauvin's case and that charge gets thrown out and his conviction gets thrown out. He will still receive the same sentence because in Minnesota, all convictions are served concurrently and the longest, most severe conviction is the sentence that is actually held. So nothing in the sentencing will matter in this context. One of the benefits or one of the positives that's coming out of this appeal, even though even though we want to see the police held accountable, is that police officers are given the lesser of all the crimes to be convicted on. It eliminates the ability for a district attorney or an attorney general or whatever the word is to intentionally undercharge or strategically charge cops and allow them to get off. Yeah. That's exactly it. Another character that we saw during the trial was Morris Lester Hall, who was the individual in the car with George Floyd before he was choked out by Chauvin. This individual invoked the Fifth Amendment and did not testify. We followed up and attempted to determine whether he was charged or what happened with him. And as far as we can tell, there is no additional charges, but he'll likely continue to invoke the fifth. So that's just kind of a sidebar following up on his his story. And again, he has to play ball or he goes to jail. It's a double-edged sword for him, right? His friend was murdered. He wants to say something, but if he says something, he goes to jail because they got shit on him. So it's kind of a really interesting play by the prosecutor here to let him plead the fifth. Because at any point, the prosecution could also offer him a deal. It says, we won't charge you if you testify. But prosecution has an incentive to not let him testify because what he says could be potentially damaging to the case against the officers. If he were to say something like, yeah, I was selling him so many drugs, I don't know how he survived. That's going to be helpful to the cops in this situation because they can point to the fact that the drug dealer killed him and then he has criminal liability. Not suggesting any of that happened, but it's a scenario in which the prosecution doesn't want to find out. Is Capital in charge here? Has Capital been controlling this entire process? I think the answer is yes. And the entire process is complicated by Capital's loss of control that happened when all the rioting happened. And the property damage, they understood that this was a risk to their future profitability. And it was worth incurring, I'm going to say, collateral damage to ensure that this never happens again. So basically, they made a deal with the devil, right? We're going to throw one of you guys in the prison, or four. You're going to clean up your shit a little bit, but you get to still act like authoritarian weirdos, monsters, as long as capital stays safe. And one of the unintended consequences of this deal with the devil is that police in Minneapolis have had their names sullied. Nobody wants to deal with the police in Minneapolis, because why the fuck would you? They literally kill people. They are a gang. They are a roving gang of, of violent criminals. 
the response to this is that the city of Minneapolis has started issuing contracts to community organizations or community groups to accomplish certain tasks as directed by the city. One such example of this is that the city of Minneapolis entered a contract of $359,000 with a community organization to clear the street of 38th in Chicago, which is where George Floyd was murdered, of the memorial and some of the makeshift roadblocks that protesters had put up. So this community organization one day attempted to clear the intersection and they largely failed. But they did this because the city told them to. What's another word for what this organization's actions accomplished? I don't know. Is it? Is it let's see. They're trying to police the area. Would you say policing? Minneapolis has created a literal distinct entity that does police work but is not called the police. Funded by what's probably an illegal contract because $350,000 exceeds most no-bid contract laws in any jurisdiction, but they just gave it to this group to basically do police work. They're literal private cops. They have no training. That's not true. They are ex-gang members. This is one of the fundamental problems with small groups who entertain capital is eventually you sell out because you have to. It happened with Occupy Wall Street where they basically just ran it out with time and all everybody else got book deals and other weird shit that happened in interviews and they basically got bought out. Black Lives Matter, there was a big row about, you know, they bought a million dollar house. They got TV interviews and things like that. This agape... I'm not sure what the fuck the name that is. A-G-A-P-E? A-G-A-P? Agape? I, I don't know. Is a group of people who was supposed to be like in support of the neighborhoods. Kind of like security, but not security. Right? Being members of the streets so that they could help the community organizations heal. They're out there you know, making sure there's no violence because they're part of the community. And they make a deal with the devil or capital. And now they are a police force. And guess what happens? You lose all credibility. So not only does the policing not work, or the policing may have worked, but you got a group of people who were actually helpful in the system, like in the society or community, whose entire credibility was just destroyed. So capital wins. And I don't think the intended outcome of this by the city of Minneapolis was to destroy their credibility. I think they truly wanted to pay an entity that was not called the police to help facilitate what the city wanted done. But they have just no fundamental concept of what policing is. And you can call it whatever the fuck you want. But when the city starts directing what should happen in a community, you're an occupying force. Getting paid to occupy shit. To occupy, yep. Literally an occupying force, which is what the police is. And so this is just police by a different name. And it's not just police by a different name. It, it's also it's scary because what's the accountability here? They got a contract. It's literal mercenaries. They're Blackwater or Zev or whatever it is, new one, right? They're, they're literal mercenaries. They arguably have less accountability than the literal Minneapolis police force. That's true. Because the, the police force have a somewhat elected officials, they have accountability upwards. This is a contract that they can sever the contract, but I'm guessing because they're doing work for the city, they still get qualified immunity. You think they wear body cameras? What's a body camera? Who's paying for that? It's not included in the 350k contract. Oh. Well, do you, do you think that they had training at all with like crowd control and or like mental health crisis issues? Arguably, the police don't at all. Just let's let's not pretend the police at least have accountability to whatever jurisdiction they operate in 
But do they? On paper, possibly. But these externalized community organizations are literally private entities. They aren't accountable to anybody. You can't, like, remove the police chief or defund them. I mean, you can, but it's a direct money payment. And so long as you're fulfilling the contract, what can anybody do about it? You're literally externalizing policing to a private organization. Literal fascism. You are doing what the city council wants, who is supported by corporations. That's why they are there. Yep. It's a, this is a literal fascist contract because the city is now contracting with a private corporation. It is taking away a public sector responsibility and giving it to a private organization. And we talk about this in the construct of neoliberalism because this is what this is. 100%. This is exactly how neoliberalism started. It's how democratically controlled fascism works. It's that you begin to chip away and erode away at the public accountability by giving away contracts to private entities. And you just go, I don't know. I, I gave them money. I guess they did it wrong. Let's try again. So because police is a bad word, our only recourse was to privatize policing with no bid contracts to community organizations that have no history or formal training for law enforcement or like, I don't even know what you call this. What you call it is basically the hijacking of a community organization that they formed to do good and were convinced that what they're doing now is good for the society and the community. It's a literal hijacking. It's stealing of their identity and using it against them. It's not so much that the organization itself is bad, but the entire construct of the city paying an external entity to do effectively police work is a massive problem. Absolutely. And it, it, it's not just to the, the no bid. It's not, I mean, it's, 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 <laughs> the city is removing culpability from the police by giving some group of poor ex cons, gang members, basically parade duty. Right. So now you don't have to worry about people like spitting on police because they're still mad at them. They can say, well, I didn't we didn't think they're going to go that far. We're sorry. We, we told them just to clear it, not to do X, Y and Z. It's a it's a mess. And I don't know why anybody ever signed up for it. Besides the fact that their material conditions require that they contract because they're hungry. Right. Which is another prime reason why police exist is that everybody working as a police officer is a class trader. Absolutely. But they're forced to because of the material conditions. And we have three or four episodes about this. But it's the same exact cycle. If you are a gape, a gay bee, you have an incentive to do this because they're paying you. You need money. What else are you going to do? And you think you can do a better job than the police. And you probably can. And this isn't to say that these individuals are doing a bad thing or intentionally causing harm. But the entire system around them is absolutely fucked up. And it's privatizing the police because the name police is so toxic in Minneapolis that the city council thought this was their only choice. That they had to bring in a private untrained militia to do the work because the trained workforce is too corrupt to actually do it themselves. I don't understand why the media in whatever the media market is of Minneapolis hasn't gotten this contract and just ripped it to shreds. All we know so far is that the contract was awarded by the mayor under some pandemic emergency authority that the city council created and could rescind at any time. It all seems like theater for blame shifting between the mayor and city council. But at the end of the day, they still paid a private police force, which seems to be the objective. It's important for all of us, though, to know that we need to hold the police accountable. And the only way to hold them accountable is to change the local laws that allow them to get away with what they get away with. We have talked extensively about this case. We find this is really important because it, it shows the contrast between 
a system that's designed to hurt the worker and protect the police and what the system has to do to respond when they fucked up and something so egregious that the public won't stand for it. It doesn't mean to let up, to allow the police to continuously get away with murder. I mean, they execute people daily. Guess what you can prevent if you have a majority in the city council or at least a voice on there? You can prevent the privatization of the police force or you can prevent the ability of the police force to get away with murder. The choice is up to the local city councils. Sometimes the change you're looking for is not direct action, but it's actually preventing harm. And in this case, being a city council, you could have prevented the contract to a copy. For future episodes and to learn more about the worker movement, join us at workermovement.com.